0: Let's so open our Bibles to the 18th chapter of the gospel of Luke, please. Luke 18 verses 18 through 23, our text this morning. We all know them. We went to school with them. they are neighbors. Maybe you live in a family full of them. Perhaps you're even one of them I'm talking about high achievers. High achievers are those who are in a hurry to be first in every pursuit in which there is a scoreboard. Athletics, academics, net worth. They go by any number of synonyms, go-getters, men or women of action, doers, but in the eye of the world they're all successful. They have a handful of titles, a wall full of diplomas and a bank account full of money. These folks have always been around. They were around during the years that Jesus Christ walked the earth. And our passage this morning tells us of an interaction that Jesus had with a high achiever. Let's read about it in Luke 18, verse 18, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. May the Lord add this blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. For many of us, this is a familiar story. And one of the reasons it's so familiar is that it's one of the stories that is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As would be expected, the story is similar in every one of the gospel accounts, but we have to put them all together to get the details that no one of them provide alone. For example, we evangelical types almost always refer to this story as the story of the rich young ruler. Now, indeed, Matthew and Mark write that he's a young man who had much property. Luke says he was extremely rich as we just read. Only Matthew describes him as a ruler, and he doesn't describe what sort of ruler, simply meaning that he was a man who had authority over other people. I suspect he was a ruler in the synagogue, which meant not only was he financially successful, he was looked up to in the religious community. But how do we know he was young? Well, Jesus refers to him as a young man in Matthew chapter 19. I, I would confess it took me several times reading all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, before I found that. And it's this one obscure little Greek word that means young man. And so I had scrambled to explain why we call him the rich young ruler until I found that word. And what I was going to settle on is that in the gospel of Mark, it says that as Jesus was walking, a man ran up to him and knelt down. And what I know by now is that when you reach a certain age, you no longer run up to anyone. You certainly don't kneel down in public lest you be unable to get up again. (laughs) But Matthew does call him a young man. When I was listing those synonyms for high achievers a moment ago, I left one out that has become part of the national vocabulary since a best-selling book was published in 1989 entitled The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Highly Effective People. It was written by men named Stephen R. Covey. It's been over 30 years since it was first published, but some of you might remember some of the seven habits. I confess I didn't, but I went back and looked it up again this week. But did you know that the number one habit, according to Stephen Covey of highly effective and read into that successful people is that they are proactive. Now a proactive person is defined as someone who takes initiative and breaks through barriers. Well, this young man ran up to Jesus. You remember that his disciples had just been scolded just a few verses earlier for being a barrier, an obstacle to parents who were trying to get their babies to Jesus. And so he broke through the barrier. He initiated a conversation while kneeling at Jesus' feet. And did you know that according to Covey, habit number two of highly effective people is that they begin with the end in mind. That is, they have goals that they are pursuing. What was this young man's goal? Well, we don't have to wonder. His goal was the ultimate goal. Look at verse 18, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted to go to heaven. That's a good goal. I hope all of you aspire to go to heaven. I'm laboring to make the point that the rich young ruler was a classic case of a high achiever. I expect his bedroom is decorated with trophies and blue ribbons. His study had diplomas on every wall. We know that his bank account was well-funded. I think what we learn about this man from Matthew, Mark and Luke's gospel is that we can make some additions to Mr. Covey's list. And for example, I, I think we know that high achievers are enthusiastic learners. They are not content not to know something. They disagree with the adage that ignorance is bliss to them. Ignorance is excruciating. And so enthusiastically he ran up to Jesus because there was something he wanted to know. I said in the introduction that all of us went to school with high achievers, even in Mississippi, we had them. (laughs) I can remember sitting in a Mississippi history class and the first day of class the professor gave us the syllabus listed all the books that we would need to buy and read. This was on Thursday class. Didn't meet again till Tuesday. First thing Tuesday morning, the professor took the role. The young lady in the back of the room raised her hand. She said, professor. He called on her name. She said, professor, I have read all the books over the weekend that you assigned. Is there anything else I can do for extra credit?" And we just loved her. <laughs> she was a high achiever, <laughs> higher achievers are task oriented. I said last Sunday that I have never met a two year old with a to do list. I have never met a high achiever without one. And he says, what shall I do? Here's his to do list. I want to inherit eternal life. Now he obviously recognized Jesus as someone he could learn from. He knelt down before him in the posture of a learner. He asked Jesus diagnostic questions. He was humble enough to know that he didn't know something. He's teachable. He called Jesus good teacher. This was not just a term of politeness. In fact, it was almost never used in that culture. It was reserved for the highest respect for Jesus. I put all these clues together and I'm convinced that this young man was sincere. In fact, I like him. We know that Jesus did. The book of Mark says that Jesus loved him. He was not like the Pharisees who followed Jesus around to try to catch him in a sin. He wasn't asking a convoluted question to ensnare Jesus. And unlike the Sadducees who came up with these obscure off the wall scenarios, he had a real question. Do you remember their question to Jesus? He said, good master, uh, a man got married and he died and his brother married his widow. And this went on six more times until she had buried seven husbands. Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now never mind that the Sadducees as rule didn't even believe in an afterlife. They were just trying to waste Jesus' time. This man wasn't doing that. He genuinely wanted to know what he could do to win heaven, and was ready and enthusiastic to start that journey right then and there. Now here's where the story takes a very surprising turn. This is the equivalent of being on an airplane and the passenger seated next to you, leaning over in mid flight and asking, excuse me, can you tell me how to be saved? Can you tell me how to go to heaven when I die? Now, for those of us who've gone through any number of evangelistic training programs, we would likely get out our Bibles at this point and walk the person through the Roman road emphasizing faith in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, his substitutionary atonement. And if we were really well-trained repentance from sin, Jesus didn't do any of those things. In fact, the more I read the gospels, the more I'm convinced that Jesus would have a hard time passing most of our evangelistic classes. How did Jesus respond to the man's question? Verse 19 tells us, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now through the ages, skeptics of the deity of Jesus have seized on this verse as an aha moment. Aha, they exclaim. Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He says only God is good and he didn't take on that for himself. In fact, this is the favorite verse of Muslims all over the world that they say is a proof text which disproves the deity of Jesus. But of course it does not. Jesus did not deny anything here. He simply made a statement that no one is good, that is perfect, which is what the word means, except God. And of course that's true. Remember I said to address a teacher with this term, good teacher was rare because as I just said, what it basically means is perfect. But many of the Pharisees, you must understand, believed that it was possible for men to be perfect. Some of them believed they were. And speaking of the law, look now at verse 20, you know, the commandments, Jesus said to the young man, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now these examples are taken from what we call the second table of the law. That is the second half of the 10 commandments and these commandments have to do with our relationship with others. Do not commit adultery. Men and women do not murder another person. Do not steal from another person. Do not fail, bear false witness against another person. Honor your father and mother who are people. These laws you might notice are the ones that are most easily seen in public of whether or not you are keeping the law. And so this rich young ruler makes a bold claim about these commandments that Jesus has listed. He said, all these things I have kept from my youth, all these things. Now here's the point in the story where preachers traditionally stop the message and come down extremely hard on the young man. Oh, you know, that's not true. He's lying. He hasn't kept all of those laws. Well, I think they get it half right. It certainly is not true that he was perfect, that he kept the law perfectly, but he's not really lying. I believe he's making a statement with a clean conscience. He says, since my youth, I have kept all of these. Since my youth really means since uh, he became accountable to the law in Jewish society, that was at the age of about 13 for a young man. That's what the word bar mitzvah means a son of the law up until that point, they're a child. They're not held accountable in public or in their mind to God. But once they become a son of the law, then they are held accountable. We Baptists would say the age of accountability, whatever that is. And the problem with the young man is not one of dishonesty. It's one of ignorance. He did not understand two fundamental truths. First of all, he did not understand the nature of the law. And then secondly, he does not understand the nature of his own sinfulness. You see, dear ones, high achievers sometimes annoy the rest of us because they're so different. They always win. They always get an A plus. They always get the promotion at work. But when it comes to eternal life, they are just like the rest of us who are low achievers or even middling at best. You see high achievers need a savior. And let's look now at the young man's two areas of misunderstanding. First of all, he misunderstood the nature of the law. Now I had a hard time at this point distilling for the sake of time this morning, what the new Testament says about the old Testament law. And so I've settled on three verses that, that summarize the rest of the teaching. And Rob's going to put those on the screen at this time. Uh, the first one is Romans 3 19 and 20 which says in essence that the law's purpose is to shut our mouth. Now we know Paul writes that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So it was never the intent of the purpose of the 10 commandments, to give a checklist to people so that they can say what this young man said, I've kept it all perfectly. The purpose of the law is to be a mirror to our souls, to show us that all of us have fallen short. So when we're tempted to boast, we zip it. The law shuts our mouth. The second verse is Galatians two sixteen, which states that the law never saved anyone. Again, Paul writes, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Hear this now, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So how many people are getting to heaven by keeping the law? None, not one, not even the rich young ruler. And then finally Galatians three twenty-four. The law leads us to Jesus. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. That uh, means schoolmaster. Picture a Roman slave who's been hired by a wealthy man to teach his son. And he's got him by the hand and he's going from place to place, teaching him lessons, taking him to school. In other words, he says the law's purpose is to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the first thing the law does, it closes our mouth so that we're not tempted to think we did it. It reminds us that there's none righteous, not even one. And then ultimately it takes us to Jesus and to his cross where our sins were atoned for. That's the purpose of the law. Again, the law is a mirror. You've been out working all day in the garden. You come in, you look at the mirror. It shows you that you're sweaty and dirty in need of a shower. It has no ability to cleanse you. It just tells you, you need to be cleansed. And then fourthly, and finally, what we know about high achievers is high achievers are saved on Christ terms. What are Christ's terms? Well, he told us last week when he was talking about those little children that the disciples are trying to keep from him. Let your eyes drift back up to verse 17. Here in Luke 18, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child will not enter at all. These are Christ's terms for salvation. The young man asked the question, how can I have eternal life? Jesus has already stated outside of his presence, you've got to come as a child. And what does that mean? Let us be reminded last week, what we said. A baby, which is the word that's used here in Luke 18, is helpless. Left to his own devices, he will surely perish. For a person to be saved, they have to come to a place where they understand without Jesus, without his shed blood on the cross, they are helpless and hopeless. And without his grace, they will die in their sins. Not only are they helpless, they are utterly dependent upon Christ. They know that not only for their salvation, but for their sustenance, they must lean on Jesus. And that leads us to the second misunderstanding of the rich young ruler. His first misunderstanding was the nature of the law. He thought the law was a checklist that he could give to God at the end of his life to say, I I did it all. I get to go to heaven. But his second misunderstanding was the nature of his own sinfulness. See, he thought that sin was a matter of simple morality. That is keeping a scoreboard. And high achievers love scoreboards because scoreboards are how we rank ourselves against other people. If you have more points than the other person at the end of the game, you win. If you have more toys at the end of your working years than anyone, you win. If you have more degrees than the people you're competing against in the academic world, you win. If you publish more books, you win and on and on it goes. And so he viewed morality as a report card, a score sheet, and he failed to understand that his own sinfulness went to the very core of his being. He obviously was not present when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared that you have heard it said of old time, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, if you have unjust anger against a brother, you're guilty of murder. And again, he says, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look on a woman to lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. And I suspect that that young man, like all of us, had committed those sins and many others. Yet this man sincerely believed that he had kept the law. But Jesus knew that he'd missed it by a mile. Let's hold our place there in Luke 18. Just put your finger right there in Luke 18. And turn back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, we come to that place where I mentioned earlier about The Sadducees, who asked that silly question to Jesus about whose wife would this woman be in the resurrection who had had seven husbands. Just after that, the Pharisees also questioned him. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Two laws, Jesus says, which summarize and encapsulate all the others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now with those truths firmly in your mind, I'll turn back to Luke chapter 18 and come now to verse 22. Here's a young man that had come to Jesus wanting to know how may I have eternal life. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. He says, I kept the commandments, particularly the second table of the law, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Two commandments, Jesus says, that summarize all of them. Number one, love God with all your heart. That is love him above all else. That is the very first commandment, isn't it? The Bible says you have shall have no other gods before me. First commandment next is chapter 20. That is love God above all else. And yet this man loves something more than God. He loved his money, loved his possessions. He was guilty of idolatry. And if that weren't enough to prove that he was a sinner in need of a savior, he gets a second body blow and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do we know he didn't love his neighbors himself? But Jesus says, first, go and sell all you have. But he didn't stop there. Put a comma there. And he says, and distribute it to the poor. Give it away to your neighbors. He wouldn't do that because he didn't love his neighbors as much as he loved himself. And so this man who seconds earlier had claimed to have kept the law perfectly has just proven that he hadn't kept any of it because all the law hangs on those first two. He had done neither. He loved money more than God. Here he was standing in the presence of God incarnate and received from God incarnate a personal invitation to be his disciple. Sometimes we forget what Jesus said. He said, sell all you have, give it to the poor and come follow me, become my disciple. Personal invitation from Jesus but he would not sell his possessions. He would not give his money to the poor and he would not follow Jesus because the other gospel says he went away. He failed at the two most important points of the law. Come close and listen. So do we, so do we. And not only at these two points, but in many others. And it's been said that pastors and churches make two great mistakes in explaining and applying Jesus' commandment to the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. And here are the two mistakes. One is they try to apply it to everyone. That is, they take it that every Christian must take a vow of poverty. I certainly, given the rest of scripture, don't believe that's the case here. But the second mistake that we make in applying, I think, is very common, and that is we apply it to no one. That is, we just view it as hyperbole, exaggeration, that Jesus would never ask anyone to divest themselves of their net worth. Yes, he would. That's exactly what he did here. He knew that before this young man could be his follower, before Jesus could be his Lord, there had to be major surgery in his life he had to remove the obstacle that was keeping him from wholehearted allegiance to Jesus. And that was his possessions. And the message to every person here today is whatever is more important to you than Jesus Christ, get rid of it. And that may be your money. I don't know. I think it's different with every person. If it is, my financial advice to you is get rid of it. If your possessions or standing between you and heaven, get rid of it. What gain is it to have the whole world and lose your own soul, the Bible says? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's an illicit relationship that's been going on in your life. You're pretending to have it all together, but the truth is you've had something going on the side a long time. Stop it. Get rid of it, remove it. Maybe for some of you men, it's, it's pornography. It's the one part of your life that you've held back from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better to enter heaven with one eye than to hell with two whole eyes. What he's saying here is to come to Jesus on his terms. Look to the law. Not only the explicit external keeping of the law, but your own heart and what you'll find there is you're like this rich young ruler. You have not kept all the law. And the Bible says this, if we have failed at one point, we have failed at every point. Come to Jesus on his term with a a closed mouth, Remember, that's what the law does. It stops our mouth from boasting and bragging. Paul says, salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, lest anyone should open their mouth and say, look at me. Come to Jesus on his terms, empty-handed. This man tried to come to Jesus with his arms full of stuff, and he would never make it through the small gate onto the narrow path because the small gate is like a turnstile. You have to come through with empty hands, not with baggage, not with luggage. Come to Jesus on his terms, humble, naked, like a little child, nothing to offer, hopeless and helpless, totally trusting, not in what you can do or what you have done, trusting what Jesus has done. There, there's a great irony in this young man's question. And, and I'll say, I, I like him. He's someone I'd want to have as a friend. He's someone that I, I would want to have as a neighbor. But, but you know, that's true of our Mormon friends. When we planted a church in St. George, Utah, I spent a lot of time out there. And what I've noticed, this is a nice place to live. People can leave their doors unlocked at night without fear of their neighbors robbing them blind. They're very moral people, but they're moral not because their heart has been changed, but because they like the rich young ruler are high achievers. They're trying to achieve a higher level level of heaven. Please understand that when a Mormon knocks on your door, they're not there because of some great concern for your soul. They have been taught to get to the highest level of heavens. They have to accrue in their account of goodness, good works. This is what our Muslim friends believe, that they must achieve certain things to make it to paradise. And friends, it's not just the Mormons. It's not just Muslims. That's what almost everyone you know believes about heaven. If you ask them, how can I inherit eternal life? They would say, be good. That your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And you need to be equipped and able to say, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus seemed to indicate if there's anything in your life that is more important to you than him, you can't be his follower. But if you're willing to to give up everything and to take up your cross and follow him, the path to heaven is not complicated. In fact, it's exceedingly simple, so simple that the smallest child can understand it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him not do for him, believe in him, shall have everlasting life. He won't perish. So what does it mean to believe on Jesus? It means to put all your weight and trust in him and none of your weight and trust in you. The apostle Paul was a high achiever, wasn't he? He had the equivalent of two PhDs. He sat at the feet of the greatest teacher of his day, um, the man Gamaliel, he said he was of the tribe of Benjamin, of Pharisees of the Pharisees, as touching the law blameless. People looked at Paul and they said, yeah, he's made it. But when he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he got quiet. He didn't point to his degrees on the wall. He didn't open up his ledger of his bank account and say, I'm successful. He didn't rehearse to Jesus all the many good deeds he has done. In blindness, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He was humble. And and if that is the attitude of your heart, you can be saved. You can't be saved with your hands full of achievements. The only way to be saved is on Christ's terms, with empty hands and outturned pockets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and... Lord, I thank you for this story of this young man. We're not told if he ever came to faith in Jesus, but I know the scripture says in Mark that Jesus loved him. He had compassion for him. Father, I pray that that would be the attitude that we have for high achievers in our life. Maybe they're in our class at school or on our sports team. Maybe they're in our family and maybe they're the person in the mirror, the one that always has to have the highest grade The one that always has to win whatever sport, whatever game, the one that always has to show off his wealth. Father, those people have to come the same way as the beggar, the prostitute, the illiterate. Father, I'm grateful that you don't save us based on our merit. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that not many wise, not many noble, according to this world are saved. That you have chosen the base things of the world to confound the wise. As we'll see next Sunday morning though, Lord, your offer of salvation extends even to the high achiever. The disciples said, Lord, who can be saved if this guy's not saved? And Jesus said, with men it is impossible but with God, all things are possible. So Father, I pray if there's one in this room today, high achiever, low achiever, no achiever, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see their need of a savior and that they would in humility and contrition, turn from their sins, call upon the name of the Lord based on what Jesus did through his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection, that they'd be saved this morning, Lord. We'll rejoice when that happens and we'll give you the praise